Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass. These are unprecedented times and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in, a good society after COVID-19. These conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in a live call and help support all of our work, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's podcast. Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated. My name is Samuel Augustine, and I am here to speak with a fantastic panel on the issue of universal workers' dignity. It is fair to say that the events of the past few years still encroach on the everyday lives of people, whether it's the COVID pandemic, Brexit, or the cost of living crisis. How we all get through life and work has completely changed due to these major events. Nothing has changed as dramatically in our society and culture than the world of work. This is because we're experiencing a period where worker dignity is at the forefront of public consciousness. The fight to own this right is as strong as the political and economic forces that wish to go back to business as usual, profit is king, and get back to the office and work. There has been much to celebrate though, Unions are on the rise. Awareness and support for striking workers has reached historic levels. And the anti-worker rhetoric that we have been fed for years from corporations, governments, and the right is being myth-busted. The Great Resignation shows that workers' lives and careers are no longer in the hands of middle management. Enough is Enough shows that coming together, no matter what political affiliation, gets a government to actually respond and do something to alleviate the financial pain that we are experiencing. Technology, as chronicled in, in our panelists' book, allows birthing campaigns, movements, and worker communities and allows them to be more accessible and adaptable and transformative. But right now, as everyone does see, is that we have plenty to fight against. Runaway wealth and profits for corporations and individuals have gone into overdrive, paid for by continuing pay freezes, inflationary spikes, and shameless efforts to strip labour rights and capturing both the UK and US governments so it works for them. So this episode tonight is more of a chance to take stock of what's happened these past couple of years, to remind ourselves that our worker dignity is right. And as we move forward, we're going to explore a little bit of the challenges that we need to stay stand against with the conversations of both power of people and with technology. But I could not think of a better group of people to have this conversation with. I'm really, really excited, really pleased to introduce everyone here. We are joined by Max Alvarez, the editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and the author of The Work of Living, we are also joined by Hannah O'Rourke and Lucy Harley McCurran, the co-authors of Reorganize, 15 Stories of Workers Fighting Back in the Digital Age. So 
let's get going. Uh, Max, Hannah, Lucy, we always start the podcast with the nice, easy question. How are you and where are you? So Max, if you want to start. Sure. Well, uh, first, I just wanted to uh, thank you all so much for putting on this important conversation and inviting us to be a part of it. Uh, I'm very excited uh, to be here, and I want to send all my love and solidarity to our siblings across the pond. Uh, I am calling in from Baltimore in the United States from the Real News Network studio here in Baltimore. Um, We are a nonprofit uh, viewer-supported media network where uh, we cover a lot of things, including uh, labor struggles, the fights against the prison and police industrial complexes, uh, the fight against climate chaos, so on and so forth. Um, but uh, as you mentioned, Sam, I tend to focus more on covering the lives and struggles of working people in the U.S. and increasingly abroad. I actually recently published an interview with Gaz Jackson from the RMT Shout out to the RMT uh, at the Real News Network. But um, I guess to to answer your question about um, you know not just where I am but how I am, you know I'm I'm feeling uh, I imagine the same way that many of you are feeling right now. Uh, I am feeling a sense of the gravity of the moment that we are in because I don't think we're going to get a moment like this anytime soon in the coming decades. Um, but this is a very scary moment. It is a moment when a number of possibilities um, exist, right? We could go further into the darkness and continue to allow corporations to destroy what remains of our civil society. We can continue to let working people be disrespected and immiserated and bullied into subservience, or we can band together and support our siblings who are standing up, taking a stand and saying enough is enough wherever they are. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, I'm both invigorated by the potential of the moment, but uh, I think I'm very clear eyed about uh, the forces that we are up against and all the strength and energy and collective support and solidarity that it's going to take for us to win. Thank you, Max. Also, Hannah, uh, please come in. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, I'm Hannah. Um, I'm calling in from Vauxhall in London. Um, yeah, feeling very um, interested in what Max just said, because I also feel like we're kind of at a turning point and there are kind of two futures ahead of us. Um, and one future is quite bleak and the other is much more hopeful. And I think um, that is daunting. It's really hard to kind of look at that and look over the precipice and actually think about what that means for people uh, going forward. I mean, one of the things we've been doing this week at Campaign Lab is thinking about how um, new AI tools can impact campaigning and what our opponents might be doing and therefore what we can be doing. Uh, and when you look at the kind of capabilities that are emerging, you sort of wonder what is the next 20 years going to look like and have we even got a grip on on what can be done? Um, so I think, uh, yeah, also feeling very much on the precipice. Uh, but I also I'm very hopeful because I feel like every day uh, I meet new people who are organizing in new ways, who are building new things, who are setting up things and who are coming together. Um, and I'm continually inspired by talking to them. 
Uh, and that's something that helps me sort of get through the week because there's just so much, there's so much, and there's so much that people don't know about. And, you know, one of the goals of the reorganized book was to surface a lot of this stuff, uh, to just share it so more people can see, okay, these are new patterns of organizing, these are new methods, uh, and just to share some of that collective knowledge because I think we're going to need it going forward. Um, so, yeah, very much echo where Max is on things too. I'm already energized. I'm already feeling optimistic. I wonder if Lucy can top this. So how are you, Lucy? Where are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good. Though. We've got a little bit of a cold, um, but I'm in um, Bethel Green in London. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I feel hopeful too. Um, <clears throat> I'm like uh, uh, writing and editing a lot about tech at the moment. And I think that there was a bit of chatter in the last two weeks about kind of like, where the power really lies because there's been I mean in January alone like among the sort of like biggest tech companies in the US like 40,000 job cuts already um so I kind of feel you know like hopefully that will galvanize people to realize like who the bosses really are because I feel like there was a lot of like chat during the pandemic about workers taking back power and uh, we wrote about it and I really feel like there was a profound shift in like how people felt but yeah I feel like recent moves by big companies have just demonstrated that you know there's still a lot more work to do in that area um so yeah I feel similarly to you guys (laughs) that's great that's great and that fits in really really nicely actually with with wanting to bring you in Lucy as the one of the co-authors of Reorganise 15 Stories of Workers Fighting Back in the Digital Age. Uh, obviously, you chronicle a lot of campaigns that was going on before the, before the pandemic, but uh, it really made use of technology, use of social media to get people together and trying to fight to make a change uh, on in the private and public sector. I'm curious to know, with your own experience with the campaign Freelancer Pay Gap, how was that experience for you? And and what do you find were the sort of key themes out of all the experiences and all the campaigns that you wrote in the book? I think key things for me uh, include sort of people realizing they could leverage their networks um, and technology to, um, to change things. Like with the freelance pay gap, I think for me, it made me realize I was being underpaid. It made me turn down jobs that I kind of would have taken otherwise. Uh, it made me chat to other people about what, uh, about money. Uh, it made, made me feel more open about open and I guess possibly less competitive with other people in the same situation as me. And I kind of think that there was like, almost a bit of a ripple when so just to explain what the the campaign was uh it was run by two freelancers who made a google form and you could submit what rate you'd been paid for a piece of work you know how long it was which publication it was um in an anonymous way and you know with that you could also say whether you're female you know what background you had that kind of thing so I guess it sort of just it highlighted you know some things we we already know anecdotally about how people are paid and you know quantified it for me so I think for me like that is sort of one example of people using new like it's not really new technology but like using technology in a new way to 
bring together a data set that is actually quite powerful because you know as soon as one person starts asking for more it, it sort of helps other people do the same thing and as soon as you share your data it helps other people as well so yeah I guess it's sort of about almost like leveling the playing field and realizing that it's not like it's it doesn't benefit you to be competitive with your like your peers Absolutely. Uh, and I think it was one of the key things I found when I was reading your book uh, and where you made mention about how you was trying to navigate through this for the, the, the COVID, COVID pandemic. Then it's the isolation of understanding what the market is like and, and, and how other people are facing the same sort of situation, same issues, but we couldn't find ways of, of connecting them and obviously uh, having the corporations be able to be able to take advantage of that. Really, really good to hear to hear your experience on that so um one of the other campaigns in the in the book is the every doctor campaign and i'm i'm bringing hannah in to to expand a little bit on that because this came uh in 2019 we already had over a decade of uh, troubles with the nhs and how this tory government had treated uh the 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 nhs in particular uh this one, I, I kind of want, if it's okay with you, Hannah, to speak on this a little bit, because one thing I, I'm seeing is the dynamics of private sort of forms of campaigning and organising and striking is obviously quite different to the public sector. I'm curious to know, like, what were the dynamics there? What, what did that sort of look like? Yeah, I mean, I think the Every Doctor example, uh, which is one of the chapters of our book, um, is a really good example of how organising is changing. Um, so the kind of every doctor is run by this amazing uh, woman called Julia, um, who basically during the junior doctor strikes back in 2015, which feels like a very long time ago now, um, what happened was they realized that junior doctors needed a way to communicate. And what technology was able to do was to give them that forum to be able to communicate and organize really quickly and um, kind of build a campaign in a very short frame of time. Uh, so what happened was you got a Facebook group being set up. Uh, there was four junior doctors, lots of junior doctors from across the country joined it. And then what you got was kind of a place where people could share their experiences, build solidarity, understand that they weren't alone, uh, and also do things like run polls about how people were feeling. Um, and that kind of digital space provided an organizing space for people. Um, I think also one of the biggest problems for junior doctors was because you're moved around hospitals when you're training, you don't get to like build any roots into any like more formal structures. So what you had was lots of like isolated junior doctors who were moving all around the country, feeling like their conditions and pay were getting worse and worse and worse. And then suddenly you have a Facebook group you can join and you can start to organize and connect. Uh, and that was a kind of seeds of what became a kind of new form of organizing within the NHS. Um, and Following that, you sort of got uh, Every Doctor, which was an attempt to, because actually those kind of Facebook groups exist for a lot of different occupations. And again, in our book, we talk about the road workers group, uh, which is great, called uh, Lads and Gangs, which is for like all the people who work in groups on the roads to share their conditions and to share information about their pay. But lots of occupations are now uh, connecting in this way. Uh, so the Every Doctor example, what's very interesting about that is it moved from just being a kind of digital Facebook group where people were sharing things to becoming a more formalized campaigning institution, uh, which is what Every Doctor is. It's like a campaigning organization, but it still draws its strength and its democratic participation from that Facebook group. 
um, but it does these much more kind of bigger campaigns. Uh, and what that institution now does as a kind of membership organisation for junior doctors uh, and doctors more generally, is it provides a way for them to be able to speak about issues that matter on the NHS. Uh, hence, you get lots more kind of public campaigns, petitions, uh, news stories, and it's a way to get um, their views out there in a way that kind of a traditional union might not ordinarily do. Uh, and as you sort of got that new institution growing, you've also got the kind of more traditional union, which is the BMA. And these two organisations now have quite a good symbiotic relationship where the BMA will sort of do the slow institutional change. And then every doctor can run campaigns that matter to junior doctors and kind of give them a voice. Uh, so I think it's a very interesting example because it shows you sort of what the future of like organising might look like, where you can kind of incubate new forms that are then plugged into a wider ecosystem of maybe more established institutions. Um, and I think that we just need more ways to organise and more complex ways to organise to build ecosystems of worker empowerment, uh, which are sort of broader and kind of connect up. Um, so I think the Every Doctor example is a really good example of um, how how organising is changing. And again, I think that really has shifted public opinion. So you look at the amount of like support there is for like the nurses strike. There's going to be another junior doctor strike ballot, I think, due uh, at the mid-February. I think it's 20th February is the deadline for them to be voting on whether to strike or not. Um, and I think, again, like giving people the ability to kind of speak in that way is really important. Um, and every doctor also played an incredibly important role during the pandemic when it gave doctors the ability to kind of share what was going on and like what they were working under and the conditions they were working under um so yeah it's a really good example absolutely i'm going to bring in max now because obviously we've we've got these fantastic campaigns here in the uk um max's book the the work of living obviously made these incredibly human stories uh, of U.S. workers. Uh, but there was one particular story that I really, really sort of resonated with. Rebecca, uh, Max, talk to me about her example. What, what happened here? Yeah, so um, like you said, the book, The Work of Living, is a collection of 10 interviews that I conducted with workers at the end of the first year of COVID-19. Uh, so this was before vaccines uh, were really rolled out. Uh, we had all just been through a very hellish year, uh, and it really wasn't clear where things were going to go from there. Uh, and the interview with Rebecca, yeah, I mean, they're all incredibly special to me. These are all incredible human beings, and I'm honored to, um, you know, publish this book and help share their stories. Uh, Rebecca is, uh, you know, just a wonderful person and a hell of an organizer, um, but she is a, an educator by training. Uh, she was a teacher in Chicago for many years and also participated in uh, some of the the, the, the critical um, strikes that took place in Chicago through the Chicago Teachers Union. Shout out to CTU uh, 10 years ago, which in many ways preceded the, the Red for Ed wave uh, of teacher strikes that we saw before the pandemic in 2018 and 2019, including in Arizona, where Rebecca is now living with her family. So uh, Rebecca has been involved in two of the most significant teacher strikes of the 21st century the Chicago Teachers Union strike and the Arizona Red for Ed strike in 2018. Um, so that was kind of like all before COVID. And um, the, the interview that we did for the book, 
you know, we we talked a lot about how Rebecca transitioned to her new role. She's no longer in the classroom. She's actually a full-time organizer with the National Group Educators United, and she works with uh, the state-based branch of that, Arizona Educators United, to help organize uh, educators, right? To provide them not only with organizing strategies, but uh, crucially with uh, digital tools and classroom strategies, you know, things that can help uh, educators teach uh, and organize, um, you know, teach for their students and organize their their co-workers. And, uh, you know, Rebecca does point out that, uh, you know, when COVID hit and suddenly every educator, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. and, uh, you know, the U.K. was suddenly given the task of figuring out how to teach remotely at the drop of a hat, right? Uh, so that obviously provided a, a lot of significant challenges for people who hadn't been trained to do that um, and, and were doing so in a system that had been gutted defunded, hollowed out, um, you know, classroom sizes were already unmanageable. The number of counselors in any given school were way lower than they were supposed to be. Uh, you know, public education in the United States, you know, like has been uh, destroyed over decades. This didn't just happen overnight. Um, and so they were already facing a lot of challenges at the onset of covid but one unexpected uh, thing that Rebecca pointed out was that when they made the transition to remote work, um, it actually enabled them to bring more people into organizing conversations, you know, because calling in on a, a Zoom meeting is a lot more accessible than going to, you know, a, a union hall or a physical space. There are pros and cons to each of those, right? That you can't always replicate the dynamism and the conversations that you can get in when you are sharing a physical space together. However, um, when folks are calling in remotely, you can uh, implement tools for uh, coming to a consensus vote, right? Getting everyone's thoughts and opinions shared and made visible on digital jam boards and stuff like that. You could have breakout rooms and facilitate uh, intense discussion in a setting that, you know, is more intimate. And then you can bring that back to the larger group. And so Rebecca does talk about in that chapter, uh, just like Willie Solis talks about in another interview I did for that book. Willie is a gig worker. He's a grocery delivery gig worker in Texas. Uh, he talks about how he, uh, a self-described introvert, used things like Facebook Messenger to ultimately um, connect with and have conversations with, I think it was over 600 fellow gig workers in his area about changes to the algorithm that determined their rates of pay um, for the app that they were, you know, technically employed by. So I do think that as challenging uh, as COVID has been for workers and organizers, you know, there are a lot of incredible folks like Willie, like Rebecca, like the folks um, detailed in both of our books who have really done the best with the tools that are available to them. And I think we should all take inspiration from that. Absolutely. I'm curious to know as well then, Max, if obviously this is a, not a unique example for her. I'm curious to know what has the sort of sort of reckoning in terms of the fight for labor and uh, union surge that we're seeing in the US. How has that come about over the past couple of years? What's sort of been the key themes that have, have uh, erupted from it? 
Okay. So I could talk about that for an hour, but I know I've got a limited window. So let me try to condense because, um, you know, I think this is the question that, that all of us in, in many ways are trying to kind of answer with our books, at least partially. And I think, uh, one thing that I would stress that I already mentioned in the example of Rebecca Gorelli, um, the, 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 you know, uh, educator in Arizona that we're talking about here, uh, a lot of my answer is already contained in that interview, right? Because as I already mentioned, um, the issues that educators like Rebecca have been facing in this country um, did not just appear when COVID-19 came to our shores. In fact, Rebecca describes the feeling that so many other educators Healthcare workers uh, and and workers across different sectors have described to me, both in conducting interviews for this book, uh, doing interviews with workers for my podcast, Working People, or here at The Real News, my segment at Breaking Points. I've been talking to a lot of workers over the past few years, and so many of them described uh, a similar version of what Rebecca described to me, which was when we saw COVID coming, we thought oh, crap, you know, like all of the inadequacies of our existing system, all of the budget cuts, all of the untenable workloads, all of the crumbling buildings and infrastructures, all the ways that we have abandoned, you know, like our, our public education system or that we have turned, uh, you know, railroad jobs and healthcare jobs into stressful, unmanageable, untenable jobs that people are quitting in record numbers. All of that was going to get compounded and made 10 times worse when COVID hit. And sadly, that is what happened. That is what a lot of workers experienced. Um, and so I think like it's important, I guess, to circle back to the initial question of, you know, where we are in this moment. One thing I've been trying to stress for folks who have asked me about the book is that, you know, uh, COVID really accentuated the existing tensions that were already becoming unmanageable in our society. And that has caused a rupture. And we are seeing how labor on one side and the ruling class on the other are trying to make the most of that rupture. And what happens next really depends on what all of us do right now, right? But I think it's incumbent upon all of us in the UK and the US to recognize that the trends that have been leading working people to this point have been taking shape over the course of decades. I mean, in many ways, the graphs, the charts that I'm looking at in the US and the UK are almost identical. Maybe the figures uh, vary, but like in you know 1960, 70% of UK workers were represented by a collective bargaining agreement, and now that's under 30%. Uh, in the U.S., our height of unionized workers was in like the 1940s, around 1945. Uh, we were uh, in the 30% range, 32% range. Now we are at our lowest rate, um, where we are barely hovering above 10% of the American workforce that is uh, represented by a union. And that really took off in the 1980s with Reagan and Thatcher. So you can see these graphs go in opposite directions where union density is plummeting over the course of our lifetimes. Uh, labor actions have also been plummeting with that. At the same time, workers in the UK and the US have been working longer. They have been working harder and they have been more productive than they ever have. And yet, because of that decrease in union density, because of economic deregulation, tax cuts for the rich and so on and so forth, 
all of that excess productivity that working people have been generating has not been equally distributed to working people themselves. It has been siphoned off into the coffers and pockets of the 1%. They're the ones making out like bandits, while for all of us in the UK and the US, wages have largely been stagnant for all of our lifetimes. Cost of living keeps going up, which we all know right now has reached a breaking point. And yet, uh, you know, Wall Street has been making a killing. Stock buy Buybacks are through the roofs. A lot of these companies that are doing mass layoffs that have been experiencing strikes in the past couple of years are seeing record profits. So again, I think the battle lines are very clear. And I think COVID just made it more clear that no one was going to come to save us. It was going to have to be working people who band together and say enough is enough. We are going to fight for what we deserve. Absolutely. And I think with everything you've with you've just kind of discussed it, it kind of leads into like how do we go forward with this how do we move forward we're, we're making so much progress but on the exact same token the, the challenges and the pushback is getting stronger and stronger and stronger this year in unison the uk and the us have been putting forward anti-strike laws which no matter what political affiliation striking is a fundamental right to our democracy everyone should have the right to do it and for that to be stripped away it's just going to make things a lot more harder which is I kind of want to give back to, to to Lucy and to Hannah about like, okay, we we at this present time, we have seen historic strikes here in the UK. We obviously have seen Rishi Sunak put the proposals in for the anti-strike laws. And you guys have done fantastic work in, you know, bringing in these sort of campaigns of people coming together. What do you look at in terms of, the, you know, this coming year and the years to come? What do you think are the the sort of key things that we should strengthen in terms of organizing and and what do you think are the sort of key challenges that we kind of need to face and and to to still grapple with as we move forward that's a big question um i think the really kind of basic thing that that we can all be doing uh is realizing that actually there are kind of like small things that people can do like you're not powerless you can do things. So like uh, one of the, and what, what kind of our book looks at is kind of what are those things that people are already doing? Uh, because people are already organizing, they're already trying to like create new forms of organizing. Uh, so even something as simple as if you're in a non-unionized um, occupation, sharing information about what you are paid is the most like radical thing you can do. Like making sure that information is freely accessible, that other people can contribute to it, because that gives you a sense of like where the industry's at. And the whole point is that they keep making profits if we don't share information. So I think sharing information either through like submitting to a Google Sheet anonymously, or you know, uh, sharing things in a local Facebook group uh, or a worker Facebook group. These are like ways that we can kind of get organised. So one is sharing information. Um, and I think that's going to be really key going forward, especially if things like more traditional forms like strikes are being kind of locked down. Um, I think it's more important that we create those networks and um, get those baselines kind of established. Um, I think also like we need to kind of on the left and uh, among the kind of like worker organizations understand that um, we have to have like more innovation like we need to get kind of the big institutional might of established unions to start investing in new forms of organizing, thinking about how they can do them, but also how can they incubate new things and how can they incubate them in a way that doesn't threaten them? Because I think often like people um, in very like established institutions can feel threatened by new things. Uh, so I think that's a 
second thing. So share information. Uh, and then the second thing would be find some way for older established institutional unions to start to incubate new things that are emerging and grow them and share the patterns and build the ecosystem because we are probably going to have a fight on our hands. Uh, so we might as well get organized. And that's, you know, that's why we called our book Reorganized. The whole point is they had to do this back in the 1900s for the first time. Uh, and now we've got to do it again um, because, you know, things haven't, haven't gone against us again. Um, so I think that's, those are the two two things off the top of my head when I think about it. Um, yeah. Lucy, I don't know if you've got stuff to add. Yeah, no, um, I would just like okay that point, and I kind of also think that like maybe just th this is too simplistic, but like I think if you want something to exist, you have to just like make it like <laughs> you make it yourself. Like so, that's like kind of a theme of like you know it's it's probably like a lot of unpaid work that people did to create these these things that uh, I talk about in the book but what people found what the people who made these things found was that they were not alone in like how they felt and um you know there's like more people that uh, are willing to kind of contribute um to that to that struggle if they just you know take the first step so yeah I guess it's sort of uh my plea would be to like create something if you want it to exist hello Samuel here from the compass office I hope you're enjoying the discussion so far it's bloody complicated it's brought to you by compass and it's made possible by the support of our amazing members like Eliza here's Eliza and why she joined the compass community my name is Eliza. I've been a Compass member for about three or four years, I think. What drew me to Compass was the fact that it's cross-party and it's also not a party. I had a light bulb moment about elections, which was no one's going to win except the Tories under this system. and We have to work together. Having been previously a member of the Labour Party and then joining the Green Party, I really wanted to see parties working together and we have people that are politicians, MPs, trade union leaders, etc. And it's quite level. There's no big hierarchy. It's quite an honest, open space where people come together. You will hear from people from all around the political spectrum actually debating the hard stuff. It's actually, let's find a solution to the problems that we have and let's do it together. We need this progressive alliance. And I would like to see people who are passionate about getting the Tories out in the next election and getting proportional representation in. Come and join Compass now and actually swell the movement because without people there's no power and that's what we need right now. Find out more about joining the Compass community at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast. And now, back to the discussion. Lovely. Great conversation. Thank you, everyone. And we're going to do the round of questions in now. So is uh, for the round of questions for the panel? Yeah, that's right. So we have uh, Joanna. I'm just going to bring in. Hi there. Can Hi, Joanna. Me? Yes, Hi we can there. hear you perfect. Hi there. Go okay. ahead. Go it's so exciting question. to have an, an international 
panel in front of me. So, you know, welcome everybody. Um, yeah, my question is a bit more generic. Um, I work quite a lot in communications, so this in, this particular thing kind of interests me. And of course, public support is incredibly important for sort of striking workers, particularly in the sort of public sector. And I've noted because um, I, I do get mail shots from the Conservative Party, which are grotesque in, in how manipulative they are, but they um, are trying to create a difference with this heuristic that there are striking workers and hardworking people, as if the people who are striking are not hardworking, which annoys the hell out of me. But how does one deal with this dissonance and change the narrative in public discourse when most of the media is right wing and is not supportive as, as much as it could be? Great question. Thank you, Joanna. Um, I think if we can bring in the the others, that'd be great, and then we'll we'll uh, bring that forward to the to the panel. Yeah. So there's just a couple of others um, that I will read out. So one from John. This has been asked as well uh, in the Q and A. Uh, why don't we fight for tax to be on all unearned income, or even fight for a land value tax? And then another one from Lydia. For each of the panelists, what is the single most effective action to improve workers' rights? and see them implemented. Rebecca is a great example, and it seems every organisation needs one, but how can we make this happen, and how can real sustainable change be actioned? Well, thank you, Harry. Who who wants to grab the question? Which one? Well, um, if, if I may, I'll hop in kind of starting with the last question, because I think it's it's where we should start. Right. And I, and I apologize if my answer is exceedingly basic, but uh, I really think that it needs to be right. You know, I started my podcast working people. Uh, we just ended our fifth season, right? So this, this was back in I don't know, 2018. Um, you know, I started it, uh, you know, before the pandemic, uh, because, you know, I remember what it was like to work 12, 13, 14 hour days as a temp worker in a blisteringly hot warehouse, right? To be treated as a disposable meat bag, right? To be disrespected as somehow less than human, right? And to be reminded every single day that I went into work, how disposable I was, how quickly I could be fired and replaced without a second thought how grateful I should be to just have a paycheck because in capitalist society, the coercive force is always reminding working people that one slip up could lead you to homelessness. And in a society that criminalizes homelessness and poverty, the next step is police and prison, right? So we are in what Bernie Sanders famously called a race to the bottom and working people are just trying to hang on and maintain a certain standard of living. That's where we were before the pandemic, right? The average working person um, knows intimately what I just described, that feeling of, you know, uh, uh, of just being uh, a number, a statistic, if that, right? I mean, but, but really to, to work 
in a low-wage job in the U.S. and uh, I imagine in the U.K. and many places around the the world, you know, is uh, a sort of form of social engineering. It is a it is a process designed to educate you in the experience of powerlessness and helplessness. Right? You are meant to be uh, to 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 be forced to accept right the the sort of unquestioned hierarchy that exists in the workplace to accept the unchallenged and unchallengeable authority of your bosses and your managers no matter how uh you know useless they are or how you know idiotic their choices are or how cruel their choices are we are just taught as low wage workers to accept it to be grateful for the paycheck that we get and to go home and not talk about it with anyone else right and so then COVID hit, and suddenly this system that it spent so long trying to convince us that we were worthless suddenly starts calling us essential, right? Suddenly it had to admit how much it actually needs us. And working people haven't forgotten that, right? That, I think, has played a vital role in people realizing that they are actually the ones who hold the world up. When COVID hit, the rich, the bosses, Wall Street traders, they all ran to their second or third homes while it was working people who kept society from falling into the abyss. And so I think the reason I go into all that depth is because one of the hardest things that we have to do and the patient tender work that we all have to be doing if we want to see this movement grow is just talk to our coworkers, talk to our neighbors, talk openly and intimately with one another and remind ourselves that we are worth more than this, that we actually deserve a living wage, that we deserve universal housing, universal health care, that we deserve a say on the job when managers are trying to make consequential unilateral decisions about COVID safety policies without any input from the rank and file, even if that means that we and our coworkers are going to get sick and die without them even batting an eyelash, right? So I think the hardest place that we have to start is breaking people out of that sense, that apathy, that that beaten into submission position that we were in before the pandemic, where we were told that we had no power to change this. And in fact, this is the only way that it could be. And we didn't deserve anything better. I think what is really hopeful is through the pandemic, more people have realized that that's not the case, that they are worth more, that they do deserve dignity and a say in the workplace. And the more that we continue that work, the more that other people are going to expand the movement and make those connections between the different strikes, unionization efforts, the housing justice movement, the climate justice movement. But it all starts at reminding people of their essential worth and encouraging them to fight for it. I I think that like the thing that I think is probably like most effective having like thought about the case studies as uh unfortunately is like when people have taken legal action or tried to change the law in some ways which I think just speaks to the need for kind of systemic change um I was just thinking of um the worker info exchange exchange uh which is where uber drivers used the law used the ICO to you know extract their data from uber so that they could take them to court for kind of like basically an algorithm controlling their working lives um, and, you know, trying to understand what the algorithm was doing and like how it was shaping their workday. So, yeah, I think, you know, the, the sort of, I guess, most practically effective where you could see 
potential shift to legislative legislative change are the sort of ones I would say are maybe long term most effective. But I guess it's difficult to know what effect the other ones will have. Um, I think that's probably my answer to the the things that I think are most effective. But you know, I guess it depends whether you mean like on a small scale or on a big scale. Absolutely, with you. Thank you, Lucy. I, Hannah, any last thoughts on those questions? Yeah, I'll try and answer the remaining two questions because they're all great questions and thank you for them. Um, so I think like that question about the Tories trying to create the difference between striking workers and hardworking people. Um, yeah, they do that a lot. <laughs> that's a, that's from the playbook. Uh, but I think the biggest way that we can overcome that is to actually show people um, and make sure that we elevate kind of speakers and uh, platform people who are kind of hardworking people who have taken the decision to strike. So the best way we can stop them doing this is to say, hey, these strikers that you're talking about, that you're trying to caricature or make into this scary thing that people should be afraid of, they're actually like people you know, they're people like you, um, they're people like us, they're people like all of us. Uh, so I think the more you can kind of platform those voices uh, and just show people that these are other people just like them rather than some scary caricature that the Tories are trying to invent. Uh, that's how you kind of beat that point uh, with the framing. And then just the other question about like, why don't we all just fight for tax on unearned income? Uh, again, we can all fight for that. Uh, absolutely, we should be fighting for that. But I think one of the things is like focusing on just legislation and being like, this is a fight for this one law doesn't fight for power because what we're talking about is power, long-term power. Um, because you can ask for it law by law, or you can build it as like a power base that allows you to keep passing laws and keep demanding change. So I think, yes, we should be fighting for individual laws. But we also have to think about how are we changing the fundamental dynamics of power in our society? Because we are approaching that point. Uh, and technology and new forms of um, you know, organizing are allowing us to do that in ways that have not been around before. Uh, so it's it's not just about laws, it's about laws and power. And um, we have to remember that second bit because it's really, really important. Absolutely. I'm going to do one more round of, of questions. Uh, uh, Harry, if you're able to bring in the, the, the next round, that'd be great. Yeah, so we have a question from Brian who I'm just going to bring in now. Okay. Um, can you hear me? I can hear you perfect. Hey, Brian. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. Come on, good, what's your good. question? Okay. Uh, yeah, well... First of all, age, right? I'm I'm 70, so I remember um, the fight against the cuts when Thatcher came in. Um, so forgive me um, for maybe... Um, I don't want to be down about this, but it feels like, and Max touched on this, we've gone back so far in the last 30 or 40 years that we're almost starting from scratch when it comes to organising people. And if you know your Labour history, it took the last generation of the 19th century and two world wars in the 20th century to get us to a stage where we had a decent welfare state. And that was only in some parts of the world and it was at the expense of a sort of neo-colonialism in other parts of the world. So um, the, the difference from between, between the Labour movement as it was when we last had the sort of membership figures that Max talked about and where we are now is that the brand pollution of communist dictatorship didn't exist. There was still optimism, maybe naivety, but there was a vision that we could build a better society. And I'm I'm curious to know whether... Did we just lose Brian there for a second? 
do see his question, I'll make mention of the, the last part of it, is can the Labour ma- labor movement learn from NDDA and mass protests as per Maiden and XR and, and what it would take to get enough people on side? So just have that fall. Harry, you've got the, the next person. Yeah, so the uh, next person is Ken. Question is, uh, tonight's debate has revolved around conflict between workers and management. Can we envisage getting to employee involvement in decision-making? Brilliant. Thank you, Harry. And again, I open that up to the panel. I guess uh, on the um, the working with corporations rather than like against them, um, I would say that you first have to have like the one side of that organized before you can explore the sort of like more collaborative models. Um, so I think like, uh, once you sort of have an organized grouping, then you can start to be like, okay, these are our representatives and we're going to work together and we're going to do workplace democracy and things like that. So I think, um, I do really think that workplace democracy is really important. I think it's kind of a long term change that, you know, you would hope to legislate. And to be fair, the Labour Party has committed to introducing sort of workers on boards and things like that. Um, but I also think like you need the organized power to support that. Um, so I think it's a, a both-and situation. They're not like a dichotomy. I got to hop in. Okay. Go for it. So, I mean, like, we're, we're like, a, as exciting as this moment is, right? And we've already mentioned a number of reasons why it is legitimately exciting, both in the U.S. and the U.K. We have seen more industrial action or strikes, um, you know, in both countries in these past couple years than we've seen basically in the entire lifetimes of everyone on this panel, right? You know, that is significant, although it still pales in comparison to where we were, say, a century ago or, or 80 years ago, but it's something, right? I mean, to, to, to go from like the labor movement being almost completely on its back and having barely a heartbeat to seeing people stand up and say enough is enough to stand up and say, we deserve better than this to take Take on, you know, Jeff Bezos to Joe Biden, right? I mean, that takes an incredible amount of courage and sense of self-worth and solidarity shown, uh, you know, that, that I think is really something to take to heart. At the same time, you know, the obstacles we are facing are imposing, numerous, and incredibly daunting. We are, you know, facing down the barrel of a pretty horrifying century as climate catastrophe gets worse. And none of, uh, you know, our governments or, you know, the private actors that are destroying our shared planet are really doing anything to fix it, right? And as that gets worse, right, the social chaos is going to get worse, the, you know, like situation that working people are in right now uh, is only going to get worse. So we know, you know, like what the stakes are here. And as the great Robin D.G. Kelly once told me here at the Real News Network during an interview, we have no choice but to fight. There is no other choice, right? You know, like at this point, it is either fight together or die alone, right? That is really, you know, like where we are at right now. And that is why I take so much 
heart from what is happening in the labor movement. It is the labor movement that reminds us every single day that an injury to one is an injury to all. It is the labor movement that reminds regular people constantly that they have the power within themselves together to change their circumstances, that we don't just have to be, as Kurt Vonnegut would say, the listless playthings of enormous forces. We can actually do something to change this. And when you band together with your co-workers, whether you're at Star Starbucks or Amazon or anywhere else, when you make that fateful step to turn to your coworker and say, let's work together to do something about this because we deserve better than this, and you win and people support you and you get a, a union contract, you get better COVID safety protections, you get a raise, you get better health care, all of that stuff empowers you and it encourages you to fight harder. And right now I look around and I see a society where people have been convinced that they have no power to do anything about any of this. And so even if it's just in a small localized uh, a workplace where people are reminding themselves that they do have power and that they have it together and that we are seeing that grow. Again, I think all of us have a role to play in that. If we are donating to strike funds, if we are showing up to picket lines, if we are spreading the word about industrial actions in the US, the UK, independent unionization efforts in Mexico, protests in India, the more that we are lifting up the voices and struggles of our fellow workers across the world, the more that we are participating in that mass action to change this crappy world into something that can give us a future worth living in, that is the fight of a lifetime. And it is a fight that is going to take all of us. And it is a fight that people are fighting on the front lines in workplaces and neighborhoods and communities around the world. So I would say wherever you are, get involved. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something to uh, advance this fight. I think that is the perfect way to end this great conversation with everyone. I want to express my absolute thanks to, to Max, to Lucy, to Hannah, uh, for the fantastic books that they've written and, and, and shared with the world and, and for contributing to this conversation. Our next podcast is on the Tuesday, the 14th of February, where we're going to be joined by Jeremy Gilbert. He is the author of Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World. And I want to give, give a quick shout out for all of our panelists. Where can we find you and, and what you got going on this year? Uh, Max. Ah, I've been talking too much. So just real quick, find me at The Real News Network. Check out my podcast, Working People. Buy my book, The Work of Living. Thanks so much for, for having me, guys. Real. Lucy, Hannah. Hey, um, you can find me uh, on Twitter um, at LHM1 um, or my website, which is linked on my Twitter. Um, yeah, feel free to reach out. Thanks so much. Great. Pleasure Thanks, Lucy. Cool. Um, yeah, I've been... Uh, getting something called campaign lab started which is all about like learning more about innovation campaigning organizing uh so you can find me there uh or on twitter i'm at hannah underscore o underscore rock uh yeah lots of underscores um yeah reach out excellent thank you so much thank you for the panel thank you for the audience uh, if you're listening and haven't joined a Compass yet, please consider Compass membership. Everything that we do here at Compass is powered by our membership. But uh, otherwise, I hope everyone uh, remains safe, uh, keeps hopeful. And until next time on the 14th of February, have a good evening and thank you for coming. 
So, if you like what you've heard today and want to be part of a much more equal, democratic and sustainable future, a good society, then visit us at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast and you'll be able to join us live on future calls just like this one. You can tweet me at Neil, N-E-A-L underscore compass or compass at compass office. And if you've enjoyed this week's episode, please give us a rating. It will help us reach more listeners in the future. And it's only fair that they know it's bloody complicated too.